You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Hi, my name is John Rogers. My wife Amy and I are involved with our gospel communities and with premarital counseling. If you could open your Bibles to Genesis 31, 1 through 3. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you and the seat in front of you. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good good morning, Northway Church. How are we doing? Okay, varied, but I'm glad to be with you. Uh, If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Logan Thompson. I'm the students minister here. So I oversee sixth to 12th grade. uh, And that's one of the honors of my life. So thank you for letting me fill that role. Uh, In today's teaching, we are covering over 70 verses of the book of Genesis. So if it feels to you like we're moving a little fast or summarizing, it's because we're moving a little fast and we're summarizing. And uh, with that in mind, and just the joy and the sacred thing that it is to open God's word, we're gonna pray just just the one more time. Uh, So if you would bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're comfortable, I'd encourage you to put your palms in your lap face up. Uh, You're an embodied soul, so what you do with your body matters. Uh, And in that posture of prayer, however you're comfortable, just take five deep breaths. And as you breathe in and out, you can recite one of the scriptures that God tells us, he says, be still and know that I am God. It's his invitation for you to stop running around like you're God and for you to rest that he's got it. If you would then just pray for your own heart and you can just say, God, would you open my heart to you? If you're not a believer in God yet, that's okay. There's no risk in praying to him then. Just ask, like, would you open my heart to you this morning? Would you pray the same thing for the person to your left and the person to your right that God would speak to them through his word? And finally, would you pray for me that I would speak in a way that honors God and is helpful to you? Father, we just confess we need you. Any knowledge or wisdom that we can get of you comes from you. And so we have our hands open in a posture that we need your help. Uh, Would you do that for us this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been covering the book of Genesis for uh, quite a while. Uh, And what you need to know for today is some helpful context. And and the kind of key thing is this, God has chosen a family. A broken, messed up, sometimes believing, sometimes doubting, even occasionally violent family. And he is going to redeem this family and make them into a people of his own possession, like a holy, set-apart people devoted to him. And God's plan is to use this one family to eventually bless every family in the entire world. Eventually, that comes through Jesus, who will be born from this family line many, many, many generations later. But our story today zooms in on a character named Jacob, 
what you need to know about Jacob is he has an older brother named Esau, and they could not be more different. Esau likes to be outside, he likes to hunt, and he's favored by his father. Jacob likes to stay inside and cook, and he's favored by his mother. He's a mama's boy. Uh, Jacob one day gets Esau to foolishly sell him his birthright uh, for a bowl of soup. Which I don't know if you like stole the TV remote from your sibling as a kid, but this is a little bit worse than that and could breed some tension as you could imagine. Uh, but his most dubious and deceitful move that Jacob does is with the help of his mom, he will steal Jacob's or Esau's blessing from his blind dad. It's kind of, I know, I hear it like it's tough. This is, I told you, this is a kind of textured family here. There's a lot of layers. Uh, he'll dress like Esau. He'll put Esau's clothes on and he'll put some fake hair on his hands and he'll go into his blind dad and say, hey, no, it's, it's me. Like, I know my voice sounds different, but it's, it's me, Esau. And his dad, after some convincing, says, okay. And he lays hands on Jacob, blesses him, and that's it. Like, there's no take backs. The blessing belongs to Jacob that should have gone to Esau. Esau is furious when he hears about it. And he tells his friends, I'm gonna kill my little brother. He's not being hyperbolic. He's genuinely going to kill his little brother. So his parents hear about this and they decide that he should flee, that, that Jacob should flee from Esau, that he should go to his uncle Laban's house far, far away, get a wife, settle down for a bit. And then maybe when he comes back in a year or so, Esau's anger will have cooled. But on his way to, so he leaves and on his way to Laban, like the land where Laban is, he has this powerful, powerful encounter with God. He's had his dad have experiences with God. He's had his grandpa have experiences with God, but this is his first like personal divine encounter. And God makes the same promises to him that he has his father and his grandfather. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna give you so many descendants, you can't even count them. I'm gonna give you the land that you're leaving. And specifically right now, Jacob, like as you go into Laban's land, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna watch over you. And I'm gonna bring you back home one day. And so Jacob makes a vow, like he responds to God in trust and he, he honors this moment by pouring oil on this stone as a, a way of remembrance that this is a key moment in his life at Bethel. And so Jacob leaves Bethel and enters Laban's land, believing that promise. And he sees one of Laban's daughters, uh, which would have been appropriate for him to marry at that particular time. And so he goes to Laban and says, I wanna marry her. And Laban says, deal. Uh, you just got to work seven years for her. Or Jacob says, no, no sweat, I'll do it right away. And so he works seven years. And in a really ironic twist, the dark night where he can't see because there's no electricity um, after the wedding, uh, Jacob gets the wrong sibling. It's the older sister, Leah, who he did not ask for in marriage. He wakes up in the, up in the morning and goes, um, dad, is, that's not Rachel. And he goes to Laban and Laban's like, well, actually it's kind of your fault, man. Like, didn't you like know the customs? Like you can't have the younger daughter before the older daughter. So just because you don't know, it's kind of on you. And uh, he says, but you can't have Rachel, the younger sister. You can marry her next week. In fact, you just got to work seven more years. And Jacob's like, okay, I'll do it. And he does. 
which is crazy. But um, Rachel and Leah then come to the forefront in our story for a little bit. They continue the, the pattern of sibling rivalry. First, we saw it with Cain and Abel, where Cain murders Abel. We saw it with Jacob and Esau. And then it gets to Rachel and Leah. They get into what I call the baby wars. Uh, they will, by whatever means, have as many babies as possible and definitely more babies than her sister. Uh, They'll send forward servants in their place if their body can't biologically create a child. And before you know it, Jacob has 12 kids, which is a lot. Um, And finally, we kind of get to our text today. Jacob is going to plan his exit strategy. He's gonna find a way to get back home. That's kind of the problem or the question that the narrative is giving us. Two problems or two questions to solve. How will Jacob get away with, or how will he get enough wealth to support his family, again, of 12? And how will he best Laban and get away? So how will he provide essentially and how will he escape? Let's jump in and find out. Again, Genesis chapter 30, verse 25. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers on the page are the chapters. So it's 30 and the smaller numbers is the verses. And I think in the the black Bible, if you're using one of ours, is page 24. So I'm gonna read from the passage. We're gonna talk about it. I'm gonna read from the passage and we're gonna talk about it. Sound good? Great. Uh, So this is scene one, Jacob and Laban's deal. We'll read 25 through 28 together. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Uh, Essentially, Jacob approaches his father-in-law with a very serious demeanor. There's no please mentioned. He just says, let us go. Uh, Laban, in a savvy way, uh, instead of talking about him, him departing, he changes the subject. Because if Jacob departs, so does the blessing. And so he says, instead of talking about leaving, let's talk about what I owe you. Let's make some money for you first. In verses 29 through 42, I'll summarize what happens. Jacob strikes a deal with Laban. He says, let me continue to shepherd your flock as I have been, but any type of sheep or goat that is spotted, speckled, or striped, I get to keep as kind of my wage, what I'm gonna earn. I don't, Know if many of you are into sheep or goats or know a lot, maybe you work with them. That's great, I don't. Uh, key thing to note, terrible business deal. Like would not recommend that you do that. That is a very small portion of the sheep. A very small portion of the goats would be multicolored. And so Laban hears this offer and his greed plunges him head first into accepting it right away. And what he does immediately after they make this deal is that he stacks the deck in his favor into Jacob's disfavor. So he'll take all the multicolored sheep and goats, remove them from his herd, send those away with his sons, three days away. And then he just gives Jacob the flock with no spotted, no no speckled, no striped. Seems like a checkmate. Like what does Jacob do? Well, Jacob is undeterred. Like he has no fear. Uh, Instead, he gets all the sheep, and as they're breeding, he peels the bark off of some sticks, making them white. He puts it in the troughs uh, in front of the sheep when they're breeding. 
Uh, and lo and behold, when breeding season comes, they bring forth spotted, striped, and speckled sheep. If you've been listening, that should confuse you. How, how does a stick that they see during breeding affect the color of the baby? Uh, well, it has to do with a ritual or superstitious practice that was super common in Jacob's day. The thinking was that whatever color an animal saw during breeding would affect the color of the baby conceived in the womb. And as a person in 2023, we roll our eyes at that belief. Where's the data? Uh, but in the mind of the first audience who read Genesis, they may have actually been tempted to think that Jacob's wealth came from Jacob, from this ritual, and not from the hand of God. But the beauty of the Bible is that it's a whole book and gives further clarity and context. And the further clarity comes when Jacob speaks to Rachel and Leah in chapter 31 about this exact event. From Jacob's perspective, it was God who provided the sheep and the goats, not Jacob's clever stick plan. He explains it. He says, Laban saw this growth of wealth. And so he would change the agreement to try and keep Jacob around longer. So for example, he'd come to Jacob and say, Jacob, you know, I've been looking over the contract and I, we, didn't, we didn't factor in inflation. There's interest. Like, and technically, when you look at the exact verbiage of the agreement, we didn't say striped, spotted, or speckled. Like it could be one or the other. So let's just say spotted. It's just spotted. All you get is spotted. And Jacob testifies that right away on the other half of that weird agreement, the sheep and the goats would only start having spotted babies. So Laban would change it to stripes and then the exact same thing would happen. All the babies that came forth were striped. Whatever that charlatan Laban decided was the new wage, that is what the best of the herd would bring forth in breeding season. So even though it takes six years with Laban nipping at his heels, Jacob's, grow, Jacob's wealth grows and grows and grows to where he can support his family now. Uh, maybe a helpful illustration would be this. Um, if I were an unathletic member of a sports team, uh, which to be fair is the only way I've ever occupied a sports team, uh, and my coach came to me and my team and said, hey, don't worry about the season. Like I, I, will, I will make sure, I promise that we will win every game by my skill. And I hear him and I believe him and I kind of don't. I'm gonna try and do my own thing to kind of help my coach out. So I'm gonna wear these specific socks before my game and that's gonna make sure we have a victory. I'm gonna have this specific sandwich and that's gonna make sure that we have a victory. I'm gonna sit in this spot in my mom's minivan on the way to the game to ensure that we have a victory. And if we start off winning for the first few games, I might think that my ritual and my socks are producing the wins. But the more games we win, the more dramatic or wild it is, and the more I realize that I'm on the bench while my teammates are playing and my coach is the one making all the genius calls, if I'm thinking clearly, the more I will realize that the silly ritual has had nothing to do with our winning or my coach keeping his promises. That ritual was my attempt to control something I do not have control over. In a similar way, Jacob starts off thinking his cleverness and this ritual with the sticks is bringing God's promise to pass. It's kind of a team up maybe in Jacob's mind. He's helping God out. But the more specific and ridiculous God's provision is, 
the more clear it is that it was not Jacob who provided for Jacob. It was the Lord. The chess match has not been Laban versus Jacob. It's been Laban versus the Lord. And Laban's looking like a fool. How does it end? Jump down to verse 43, and I'll read that for us. Thus the man, that's Jacob, increased greatly and had large flocks of female servants and male servants of camels and donkeys. And so that's the answer to the first problem. Like how will Jacob support his family? Well, God has provided. It's provision given from his hand. But Jacob's wealth is going to draw some negative attention from his in-laws. And we'll see that as we turn to scene two, Jacob's departure. This is Genesis 31, one through two. I'll read it for us. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Jacob observes correctly that his relationship with his in-laws is souring. First, he hears that his brother-in-laws are interpreting his wealth in a specific way. They believe that Jacob has stolen from Laban and profited off of him. That he has stolen wealth that belonged to their dad and by their inheritance one day, wealth that would have belonged to them. So it's not that he just stole from Laban, it's that he stole from them in the future. The kind of presence of brothers who accuse you of stealing something from their father would not have stirred the fondest memories in Jacob's mind, but it's actually worse than that. Next, he sees that his father-in-law does not like him anymore. There is a change in Laban's body language, his eye contact, his tone of voice, or maybe just the responsibilities he gave to others and not to Jacob. Everywhere Laban would have looked, he would have seen Jacob's growing wealth and his greed and anger grew right in step with it. Jacob is no longer the top producer for the family. He's the top threat. His home is becoming hostile. But relief comes in the form of verse three. I'll read that. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. God steps in and says, hey, Jacob, like it's time to roll. It's now, like we're going. Like take your people, or you're gonna come with me. My presence is guiding you. You'll be okay. You find this brings no complaints from Jacob, who tactfully calls a family meeting in a field where no one can overhear them. We read about it in verses four through seven. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know how I've served your father with all my strength. Your father has cheated me, changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Jacob begins to paint the picture of the last 20 years as Laban's agenda versus the Lord's agenda. He compares and contrasts their actions. Laban doesn't regard me with favor, but the God of my father has been with me. Your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. So Laban seeks to harm or destroy or cheat Jacob, but God seeks to bless dignify and protect Jacob. He'll give an example of how it plays out in verse eight. Jacob says, if he, that is Laban, said the spotted shall be your wages and all the flock bore spotted, that's God's blessing. 
And if he said, the stripes shall be your wages, it's Laban again changing it, then all the flock bore striped, God's blessing. Verse nine, thus God has taken away all the livestock of your father and given them to me. Jacob then tells Rachel and Leah of the vision that the Lord gave him, that gave him the, the courage to call that meeting with Laban in chapter 30. Uh, it said, he recounts it in verses 10 through 12. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Jacob is sharing the story of God's faithfulness and his power to Rachel and Leah and that God has seen the painful situation Jacob has been in and God has not been uncaring or far off, but he has come close and he understands. Once more, we see the thread of God's presence and protection. In verse 13, Jacob will show that God's identity is tied back to his encounter with him at Bethel. And he promises, uh, and the promises he has been faithful to follow through on and an invitation to step into another aspect of promise that has not yet been realized. We read this in verse 13. God says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. God has been faithful to watch over Jacob. And now God is inviting Jacob to take him up on his promise to bring him back. God has kept promise one and two. And he's saying, Jacob, will you trust me for promise three, that I am faithful to complete it? So that's Jacob's compelling speech to his wife, wives. And he says, man, is, it, like, is that good enough? Like there's tension in the air because they could stay with Laban. They could reject Jacob and they could choose to stay with their father. But they answer in verse 14 through 16. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? He has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Rachel and Leah relay to Joseph what it has been like to be a daughter of Laban. He has taken away their inheritance, treats them like strangers, and he's devoured their money. It should be noted that Rachel and Leah have like hated each other for their entire life, essentially. So what kind of a person does Laban have to be to make them come together on a team? Laban is essentially the mean lunch lady that unites the cafeteria of students against the common enemy. And they're like, okay, well, we're together. We're with you, Jacob, let's roll. And in verses 17 through 23, to summarize, this is what happens. Jacob flees with all of his crew uh, and on their way out of the house, Rachel will snag her father's household gods, so these little like figurine idol things, and she'll put them in her, her bag and she'll go. And so they leave. Laban, it was his busiest time of year for work. He returns after three days, finds out they're gone, and in anger, he pursues them. Uh, the picture in the Hebrew is of a army pursuing an enemy army. Laban is chasing Jacob to come and hurt him. But in verse 24, we'll hear that something or rather someone stops him. 
This is verse 24. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Once more, God stands in between Jacob and Laban. He puts his hand on Laban's chest and says, hey, bud, it's far enough. He is warned by God not to speak to Jacob with blessings or curses. Uh, It's hard to know why that exact phrase is used by God. And to be honest, I didn't find a satisfactory answer as I studied. But my best guess is that it first of all reminds Laban of who is with Jacob, God. Therefore, if Laban tries to go against Jacob, he finds himself ultimately against God. And secondly, if he tries to butter Jacob up and speak all these kind things to him, it's just, it's seen as fake because of their relationship for the past 20 years. And if he tries to challenge Jacob, he's just gonna look like a fool. Regardless, after 10 days of pursuing Jacob, Laban and his crew catches up to Jacob and his crew and they meet for scene three, Jacob and Laban's confrontation. I'll read for you verse 26 through 28. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? That you have tricked me? Driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. Laban uh, takes God's warning about how to speak to Jacob and just blatantly ignores it. He encounters Jacob, speaks negatively to him and puts a whole like spin or angle on what their relationship has been like. Laban paints himself as the poor father-in-law and father and grandpa who would have gladly honored and sent away this family in joy and style. But that rascal Jacob had to trick him and steal from him. From the perspective of the reader, it is clear that Laban not only lacks a generous heart, but he also lacks self-awareness. Not 14 verses ago, we heard how his daughters have experienced their dad. He has sacrificed them and used them as pawns for the pursuit of his own gain and benefit, the very opposite of what a good dad does. He's been a con man through and through, but he paints himself as a victim. He then levies a stronger insult when he calls Jacob a fool and he flexes his power in the first part of verse 29. Laban says, it is in my power to do you harm. AKA, I could hurt you, Jacob. It would be easy for me. But once more, it is the presence and protection of God that stops Laban. He continues in verse 29, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Big bad Laban realizes God is protecting Jacob. While he's comfortable to skirt around the commands about wording, he's restrained to not harm Jacob physically. Finally, Laban offers his strongest accusation in verse 30. And now why have you gone away, Laban says, because you longed greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my God's? This would have been a serious offense to not only steal, but to steal something as precious that would have signified who gets the inheritance or who has the family blessing. It's a big deal if Jacob stole these things. He would have committed a sizable crime and some bad stuff would have gone down. Jacob replies to his father-in-law somewhat sheepishly to this harsh rebuke with some restrained or 
reserved honesty in verse 31. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Jacob owns it. He's like, yeah, man, I fled because I didn't think you'd ever let me leave. He continues in verse 32. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. Like in the presence of our kinsmen, point out what you have, what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban goes into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent and the tent of the two female servants, but he doesn't find them. The tension is building. Laban searches the tent of the man he suspects most. It's Jacob. He suspects the daughter, searches the tent of the daughter he suspects most. That's Leah, the two servants, and finally to sweet, sweet favorite Rachel, the one he least suspects. We read about what happens in 34 through 35. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot arise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. In the end, Laban, the trickster, is tricked by the one he least suspects. Rachel lies about not being able to stand up and Laban has no clue that she has the idols. And he walks out of Rachel's tent to a crowd that sees he has nothing. That his accusations have fallen flat and it's in front of his men and Jacob's men. Once again, Laban looks like a fool. And now that Jacob has had his innocence proven publicly after he was just railroaded by his father-in-law will be stirred in anger and he'll flip the tables. He will be the one accusing now. This is verse 36 through 41. I'll read it. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? For you have felt all through my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between the two of us. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages 10 times. The tone of speech uh, that Jacob uses uh, and his kind of precision reminds me of something that happened to my wife and I during COVID. Uh, we were in just the shadiest apartment complex is we just had to get up out of there after about four months. Uh, And so I drafted an email to management with a type of adrenaline, precision, and detail that only the Holy Spirit can afford a father trying to care for his family. In it, I included a document that had a timeline of about 20 instances of crimes we saw, the times we reported our concerns to management with little to no intervention or aid, the times we called the police, the times our house reeked of drugs from our downstairs neighbors, that my wife was pregnant, that now we had a newborn. And oh, by the way, my wife is asthmatic. I included phone records of when I called 911, phone records of when I called management, screenshots of emails to and from management, and even pictures of the police on property. I ended the email with this line. 
Due to all that we have gone through, we desire to break our lease with zero fees, fines, or penalties given to us. If you disagree with these terms, I have CC'd our family lawyer who is happy to take your call. Now, between you and I, I don't have a family lawyer. Uh, It's a contact my father-in-law gave, but you know what I mean. Uh, And I am happy to tell you that God provided. We got up out of there, no fees, fines, or penalties. So praise the Lord for his kindness towards the Thompsons. That is the type of passion and precision that Jacob just used to publicly rebuke Laban. He begins by saying, hey, Laban, let's own the fact you have flourished because God's blessing is on my life. You were poor when I came and now you got your own little corporation and empire going. And even though you knew that was why you prospered, you never let me celebrate with you. You never let me eat the rams with you at the feast. You kept me on the outside looking in. He then talks about his experience in the hard days as a shepherd. In many cases, if a sheep was attacked by wild beasts, if the shepherd could present the carcass to the owner and be like, hey, clearly I didn't do this, uh, then the shepherd wouldn't have to pay. Um, Or maybe um, the owner would have a stipulation that if you had something stolen by night, then you wouldn't have to pay for it if you could prove you were innocent. Basically, shepherds had realistic expectations over them from the owners of the sheep that you wouldn't have to cover the sheep loss in every circumstance, in every type of situation. But when you work for Laban, that's not the case. No matter what happened or when it happened or what evidence Jacob put forward, Laban made him pay. That is a cruel man. And finally, he tells everyone of the changing wages and how Laban kept trying to move or renegotiate the contract to Laban's harm. After this devastating accusation that Jacob makes against his father-in-law, Jacob gives a summary of their entire relationship and the best summary of our passage today in verse 42. It says this. Jacob says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Here's the spin-free version of Jacob and Laban's relationship. Laban has always been intent on harming and stealing from Jacob, but God has always been with Jacob and stopped Laban. The two characters who are really clashing together over and over again was Laban versus the Lord. Jacob knows that if it came down to who would outfox who or who would outtrick the other, Laban would have won. But it was never about that. It was about God's presence, God's promises, and God's protection over Jacob's life. That promise that God made to Jacob at Bethel has been kept. This is the answer to our second question. How will Jacob best Laban and get away with his family? The answer is he doesn't. God does it. On his behalf and by God's presence, Jacob will get away securely. Jacob has been seen and vindicated by the Lord and Laban has been rebuked and made to look like a fool. Laban's response to all of Jacob's speech is classic Laban. He will not repent. He will not humble himself. He will not apologize or acknowledge the truth. He has told himself the lie so many times he begins to think it's reality. 
verse 43 says, then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. He's responding to Jacob's question earlier when he says, what do I have that's yours? Laban's answer, everything. Laban won't agree to the truth. He won't agree with Jacob. But in the following verses, he does propose a covenant agreement with Jacob. And that's significant. Throughout the entire book of Genesis, when someone outside of God's chosen family asks to enter into covenant agreement, it's because that outside party is acknowledging that Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob are their superior. Jacob is now Laban's superior. So they make a covenant not to cross over an agreed boundary. Laban kisses his daughters and his grandkids and departs, and we never see him again. Now that's one wild family story and God's grace in it. But what does it mean? Well, the way we get there is to ask, what would this have meant to the original audience, the people who first read the story? And that would have been the people of Israel, aka Jacob's family that's become so big that they're a people now or a country called Israel. And it would have been right after they had been rescued by God from Pharaoh through the Exodus story, which is the next book in the Bible. So from their point of view and from ours, if we read Genesis and Exodus, Jacob fleeing Laban is another Exodus story. It's a prequel. It's another story of God delivering his people from an oppressive ruler or force. The parallels are woven over and over between the two stories. For example, Laban seeks to hinder Jacob's flock and stop their growth. But the Hebrew word is uh, used to team. It's like growth in spite of the hardship. In the same way, Pharaoh sought to hinder Israel's growth, to not let them expand as a people. But the same Hebrew word for team is used and they grow in spite of it. God comes to Jacob and God comes to Moses and says that he has seen their affliction and that he will act on their behalf. Pharaoh changes his mind 10 times on when he will let Israel go. Laban changes Jacob's wages 10 times to stop him from leaving. And both Israel and Jacob are pursued by their oppressor on the way back to the promised land and God steps in to protect both groups. And just like in our story today, the battle was not Pharaoh versus Israel. It was about Pharaoh versus the Lord. So with that said, what does that mean to us? One more step removed as Christians. Well, it gives us wonderful news and a reminder. We have been delivered from our oppressor. We have been rescued. We have been protected by Jesus. Through Jesus, God drew close to us, saw our pain, and he did something about it. Jesus took on the enemies we faced of Satan, sin, and death. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he defeated death so soundly that he took death's keys. Through his sacrifice, Jesus crushed the head of Satan while he himself was bruised and wounded in the process. He absorbs all of our sin and its damage and payment into his own person. And he freed us from that cruel tyrant of sin that we had foolishly fallen in love with and who our hearts were at one point willingly enslaved to. He came and got us because that's what Jesus does. That's who God has always been, a God of deliverance and power. He's not a cruel father figure like Laban who tries to intimidate or manipulate or is driven by greed. 
Jesus instead is the perfect older brother who humbles himself, speaks only truth, and is driven by sacrificial enemy love. And he reunites us perfectly to God the Father. Jesus makes the claim that this is his mission in Luke 19, 10. He says, the son of man, that's him, has come to seek and to save the lost. In Matthew 12, he will say that he has come to bind the strong man and to take what's his, meaning he has come to reclaim his people who are under the dominion of darkness because he is stronger than the evil one who has us trapped. Or 1 John 3, 8 puts it this way. The reason that Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what does that mean for us? It means that your testimony, Christian, is not about you overcoming hurdles. Your testimony is not about you becoming some kind of hero. Your testimony is not even about you versus your sin. What really happened is that it was the Lord versus sin and he has won that victory on your behalf, amen? Now, how do we take all of that meaning and apply it to our lives? Well, towards that end, I have a question for you and an invitation for you. So first, a question. What perspective do you take on the story of your life? What perspective do you take on the story of your life? Jacob has some real issues. Got some real sin patterns, Dude's a piece of work. I wouldn't trust him if he tried to sell me something on Facebook Marketplace. But what Jacob got right is how he viewed his story. What does he say over and over again? The God of my father has been with me. God did not permit Laban to harm me. He rebuked Laban because he saw the affliction of my life and the work of my hands. He said that after going through 20 years of having Laban try to manipulate him, trick him, and complicate his life. And just for clarity, 20 years ago was 2003. Jacob looks back over those long 20 years of cold nights washing sleep, financial pressure of having to pay for a sheep that he couldn't cover because he didn't have wages, the awkward dynamics in his home between Rachel and Leah, the changing of his wages, which would have brought public embarrassment. People would have known that Jacob was tricked and it would have been deeply shameful. He would have thought of the anger of his brother-in-laws who interpret his wealth in this wrong way that even Laban doesn't agree with in chapter 30. And he looks at all those 20 years and he says, God has been with me. I have not been abandoned. He looks on God's provision and doesn't say, yeah, man, like that was me and my stick ritual. I grinded, I made myself into something. I worked hard. No, instead he says, God provided for me. It wasn't luck or blind chance that has brought the blessing. It was God's good pleasure to provide for Jacob. And do you say that about your story? Probably not. But if you are in Christ, you can. And if we're not in a place to to describe our stories in that way, then maybe we need to get alone with God and bring that to him in prayer. Maybe you need to get out a journal and a pen and write on a timeline of your life, the top 10 good things and the top 10 bad things and ask God to help you see that he has been with you and he has been protecting you from further harm. Maybe it doesn't look like the way we think it should or would, 
And maybe he has purpose pain that we can never explain on this side of heaven. But we can look at the facts that he saved us, he bled for us, he washed us, and he's never left our side. And maybe that can give you and I the faith to look at our whole story and say alongside Jacob, but God has been with me. Do you say that about your story? That's a question I want you to put in your pocket this week if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's the offer to you. To have your whole story flipped upside down as a gift of grace that God doesn't wanna stay far away from you. He wants to draw near and change you even if you look like Laban. Jesus is in the business of flipping Labans and turning them into his people. He did it with me. So that's the question. And finally, we have an invitation. In light of God's faithfulness and kindness to us, where he's earned our trust 10,000 times over, where is God calling us to step out and trust the promise he has for us in his word? So that's the invitation. Find a promise God has given to us in his word and step out in trust. Jacob sees God keep his promise to be with him. Jacob sees God keep his promise to watch over him. And in our story today, by faith, Jacob trusted God's promise to bring him back home. And so he stepped out and acted on that promise. Notice I said it's promise found in the word. We don't wanna hold God hostage to promises he has not made, right? My daughter the other day said, hey, can I have waffles? I said, yeah, I mean, we could check the freezer. And she goes, no, God promised that there would be waffles. I was like, uh, no, no, he, he didn't. He did not say that. Um, so look in the word. Maybe for you, it's persistent prayer when you would rather stop praying. Jesus says in Matthew 7, to ask, seek, knock, be borderline annoying to our heavenly father because he delights to hear from us. And you can trust in his providence and his timing and not give up to keep praying. Is that the promise that you need to lean into? Or maybe you've been hiding a secret sin from your community or your spouse. And the idea of confessing it is, is absolutely terrifying. You just freeze the thought of that confession. The promise I would point you to is 1 John 1, 1.9. It says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you need to confess and receive the grace of God? Maybe it's the nations. God promises us that people from every tribe, tongue, and language will surround his throne at the end of time. That's a fulfillment to his promises to Jacob, right? To, to, and every family will be blessed through this one chosen family. And that could look like you seriously considering a calling overseas. Uh, one pastor put it this way, there are the goers, there are the senders, and there are the disobedient. And so how are you gonna partake in God's mission? Because he's calling us into it and saying that he will accomplish his purposes. Or maybe it's just generosity. God has been faithful to give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he promises us that when we invest the money he lends to us into his kingdom, then that's an, an investment where moth, rust, and recession don't touch. So give away the money God has let you borrow. Give it to the poor. I don't know what promise God is specifically calling you to, but I want you to invite you to find it in his word and take that step. 
And why do we step out in faith? Because of all that we've seen today. It was not Jacob who provided for his family. It was the Lord. It was not Jacob who came up with a way to defeat Laban and get away. The Lord took care of that for him. The Lord is on our side, fighting our enemies on our behalf, and he is worthy of our trust. You and I, church, get to now be that imperfect, sometimes believing, sometimes doubting, lots of issues, but headed towards Zion family that is trying to see every family in the world blessed with the good news of Jesus. He has earned our trust, and now he's calling us to step out in faith and see that he has always been with us. Let's pray to that end. Father, we just want to confess that we love you. You've been really kind. You've been faithful to your promises. And I just ask that you'd give us faith to believe that the rest of your promises are also going to come true. Would you help us see our stories in the very specific and true way that you have always been with us, always holding back further damage, purposing our pain, maybe not in a way that we know, but trusting that one day you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and that one day you'll make all the sad things untrue. So help us, we need you and we love you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.